And let's turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I'll read from verse 18. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. As we've been looking at this chapter more recently, we've seen things that God has revealed. We saw how God has revealed in the gospel, verse 17, righteousness, a righteous, the provision of righteousness from God. God has revealed that in the gospel. And then in verse 18, we see something else that God has revealed, his wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. God making known righteousness and making known his wrath. And then in verse 20, we see something else that God has revealed. His eternal power and deity. His eternal power and divine nature. And it's at that that we're going to be particularly looking this morning. But let's just get the drift of the argument that Paul is bringing here, uh, how he is uh, presenting the truth. First of all, in speaking about the gospel, he speaks about its universal relevance. He says that it is the good news of God, verse 16. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. All races then included in this, this is relevant for everyone, universally relevant. The salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. As he goes on in chapter 3 and verse 22, he's going to make it clear again why this is universally relevant. He says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned. Everyone is in the same position. All have sinned. And here's a gospel that is for everyone, for all who believe. Universal relevance, then, of this message. Then, in verse 20, he speaks about a universal revelation. Since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. 
there is a universal revelation of God, universally available in what God has made. Since the time of creation, what he has made is showing everyone something about God. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. It says, Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice isn't heard. This is a revelation of God that doesn't need to be translated. It's universally available, whatever your language, the heavens declare the glory of God. There's a universal revelation of God. And there is no speech or language where their voice isn't heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. A revelation of God that needs no translating. Everyone can see it. So there's universal revelation. And then here in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul speaks of the universal response. Verse 18 He refers to those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The universal response is to suppress the truth because of its obvious implications. And we were looking at that last week. If people acknowledge the implications of what they could see, they'd have to worship God. If they don't want to worship God, then they have to suppress the truth and deny the evidence of their eyes. So that is the response. And then in verse 21 and onwards, he speaks about a distortion of the truth. Deliberately missing the point. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. You almost get the the contempt in his voice as he says that. Uh, The glory of the immortal God, instead of that, replacing it with images made to look like men, birds and animals, and reptiles. The universal response then is to miss the point by distorting the truth or suppressing the truth. And the universal result in verse 20, so that men are without excuse. That is the outcome of this revelation. There is no alternative route of salvation to just kind of Get saved by what you see around you? No, the the result of this revelation is it leaves people without excuse. Hence, back to where we started, the universal relevance of the gospel. Everyone is in the same position. No one has any excuse. You see, sometimes people will say, well, when you think of final judgment, what about people who have never heard? What Paul is saying here is everyone has heard. There is a revelation of God that is universally available so that everyone is without excuse because what have people done with that revelation? Chosen not to see it. Chosen not to draw the implications that should be drawn from it. Hence, the relevance of this gospel. So that's Paul's argument. That's the way he is running it through. But let's now home in on uh, what he says in verses 19 and onwards, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature or his eternal power and deity have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. 
Creation tells us something. It tells us of God's eternal power and his deity. Creation doesn't tell us how to be saved. It's a limited revelation of God. It doesn't tell us that the God who made that sent his son who died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and through faith in him we can be saved. You won't get that message from looking at creation. But creation does tell us about God's great power. And it does tell us about his divine nature. His existence, his power, is evident in his works. But let's look more specifically at what creation tells us. And indeed, the Bible very often draws attention to things that we can learn from what God has made. We looked, didn't we, at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation tells us something of God's glory. The glory of creation echoes the glory of the Creator. When you look at a landscape, I mean, just if you, if you drove from Sheffield, say, down to Hathersage, when you get to the surprise view, as it's called, you turn that corner, and there's Derbyshire in front of you. You just look at that. That's just one little glimpse. That says something about the one who made it. Then go into more spectacular scenery. If you've ever been privileged, for example, to go on a long-distance flight and overflown the Alps, and you look down and you see that. It's amazing. The glory of creation echoes the glory of the one who created it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In Isaiah chapter 6, where we read of uh, the... uh, This vision that Isaiah has of God, I saw the Lord, he says, seated on the throne. And it refers then to the seraphs that were above him. And they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Just look around, not in a building that is made by men, but get outside into what God has made, and the whole earth is full of his glory. It's there to be seen. Unless you refuse to see it. Unless you suppress the truth. You distort it. But there is a revelation of God. In creation, we also see something of God's character. Jesus drew attention to that in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 26, or verse 25, he said, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? So why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. And I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith? So don't worry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? See, Jesus is drawing attention to a revelation of God that is all around us. 
Yes, he could point to scriptures, as it were, but he says, just look at the birds of the air. Just look at the flowers. God looks after them. You see what happens. They're looked after. Then he will look after you. In Acts chapter 14, you see Paul preaching a similar message. He's speaking to people who don't know the Bible. They haven't got it. He can't point to any text. So he points to what they know. Acts 14, verse 17, he speaks of God. He has not left himself without a testimony. And what's God's testimony? He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. The way God has made things tells us He is a God who provides. Yes, we've got scriptures that say it, and we can believe those scriptures, and we must believe those scriptures, but creation says it as well. Just the fact of the seasons coming round, that this is God's testimony. He gives crops, He provides you with food, and fills your heart with joy. The sheer greatness of God also, of course, is there, in creation, in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. See what he's saying? Look at the vastness of creation. The God who made the world and everything in it can't be located in just a little building. He can't be confined in some kind of shrine. And in other parts of the world, you see little shrines by the roadside where people go and worship their God. You look in there, and there is a God. You think, a very small God. It can be contained in that little building. Our God cannot be contained in a building. Look, the one who made it must be bigger than it. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. If we fall into the snare of of worshipping a God who's too small, and sometimes our faith gets kind of battered a little bit, and we start thinking, can God really do that? Then just go outside. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. Get out into the country. Look at a landscape. The God who made it is our God. He's very great. Can't be confined in a little space. Then he goes on. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands. As if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He clearly doesn't need anything from us. Because he's the one who gave us all that we've got. We can't give him anything that he hasn't already got. He provides for everything that he has made. Therefore, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need what we can give him. See the vastness of God. Creation tells us the sheer greatness of God. Then in writing to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul uses something from creation that is used in other places as well. Uh, In Scripture, Galatians 6 and verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. The whole image of sowing and reaping, it's just part of life. Unless we think food just does originate in a factory somewhere, it grows out there. You sow things, they grow. It's a principle of life. Now Paul draws attention to that and says, yes, it's principle of what you sow, you will reap. What you put in the ground will affect what comes up. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, from the spirit you reap eternal life. There is a harvest. It's a principle that God has built into his creation. We need to understand God will judge us. Don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. You'll reap from what you sow. That's what creation tells us. And then Paul uses the same principle of sowing and reaping in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9 And verse 6, he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. So this is the time of year, if you do any gardening, when you start putting seed in the ground. Now, sometimes you don't want an abundant crop, so you put one seed there and another one a few inches away or whatever, because that's how you want it. Or you'll just scatter seed. Depends what it is you're putting in the ground. But there's a principle. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. The crop is determined by what you sow. So each man should give what is decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness and so on. The principle sowing and reaping. Yes, it applies to judgment. It also applies to how we give. That when we give generously, then God loves a cheerful giver. There's a principle there. And it's creation that gives us that principle. And then in John chapter 3, we find Jesus using just a very natural analogy here, a natural picture. John 3 and verse 8, he says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound? You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The wind, unpredictable. It can suddenly change direction. It can also be fierce. It can blow you off your feet. The wind, we can't control it. And Jesus said that's how the Spirit of God works. Can't control the Spirit of God. He's sovereign. And he will come and do what he wants to do. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so it's no coincidence, surely. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, as God is about to pour out his Spirit, there's a sound like a violent wind. The Spirit of God sovereignly moving as he wishes. Uncontrollable, untamable. This is God. Creation tells us that. It's there in creation. Perhaps the most telling 
example of this revelation of God that is out there in what God has made is in the book of Job. I don't know if you are familiar with the story of Job. It's perhaps not the most uh, uplifting story. Uh, chapter after chapter, it can get a little bit depressing because poor Job is going through the mill. God is allowing him to be tested His life has fallen apart. Everything has been taken from him. And then to add to his difficulty, his well-intentioned spiritual friends come along with their advice. And they're bringing all these heavy concepts to this poor man who is suffering. He's getting bombarded with misapplied truths. He hardly knows what he believes anymore, but he does know, I know that my Redeemer lives, he says. He still does. He's clear on that, but everything else is getting confused by these friends who keep heaping their so-called wisdom on him. And then, chapter 38, God comes. And it's like God says to Job, he doesn't quite say it like this, but it's as if God says to Job, okay, Job, you've had all this all this truth bombard your ears. You've heard all your, the, your friend's advice. Now come outside. Just come outside. Let's have a look around. So in chapter 38, it's as if God takes Job on a walk through the scenery. He begins, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who marked off its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line? He says, on what were its footings laid? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who said where the sea should stop? Who shut up the sea behind doors? And what about the clouds? And when I said to the sea, this far you may come and no further, this is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the sea? Where does the sea come from, Job? Have you ever thought about that? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? And where does light come from? And where does darkness live, Job? Do you understand this? And have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow? Or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble? And... What's the way to where lightning comes from, Job? And where does the east wind come from? And who cuts a channel for torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Who tells the lightning where to go? And what about the planets? What about the stars? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion? Can you raise your voice to the clouds? Do you... Do you tell the lightning bolt where to go? And so on. He goes on. Just look around, Job. And he doesn't draw any lessons from this. He just draws attention to things. And then, having walked through the scenery, he says, Now, Job, let's go to the zoo. Let's go to a menagerie. The lion. Do you hunt the prey for the, the lioness? Do you satisfy the lion's hunger? And... Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? And what about the wild donkey? Did you let it go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave him the wasteland. And what about the wild ox? 
Will he consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger? Of course not, Job. Job, and what about the ostrich? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they can't compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. So he's taking Job. Look around, look around, Job, at all these animals. And what about the horse? Did you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? And then it goes on um, until you get to some rather strange animals in chapter 40, verse 15. The footnote suggests this could be a hippopotamus. Look at the hippopotamus, Job. Wonderful lesson is teaching him here, which I made along with you. What strength he's got in his loins. What power in the muscles of his... Do you see the contrast here? Job's friends have been bombarding him with scriptures. Truths, abstract things are all misapplied. They're they're true, but just don't apply to Job. Job's head is spinning with all this advice. He's totally confused with all. And God says, now, Gus, come outside. Look at the immensity of the scenery. Now let's get into this menagerie and see all these. Look at the hippopotamus. I mean, what a strange thing. And then another animal in chapter 41, the footnote suggests this could be a crocodile. It says, who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. Sees all of these animals. What's the impact on Job? The impact on Job in chapter 42, verse 5, is my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Ah, a bit of light is dawning. Now my eyes have seen. Where did he see God? In the scenery, among the animals, in the zoo. The works of God's hands, the sheer wonder of what God has done. He's heard all the ideas now. Now my eyes have seen you and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Revelation gets through. But it's a revelation through what God has made. The heavens Declare the glory of God. God has not left himself without testimony. His works declare his wonder. That's the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 1. So let's return after that uh, rush through so many scriptures to where we started. Romans chapter 1. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. The point is that truth about God is visible, it's tangible, it's available. It's there. We live in God's world. And God's world displays what God is like. It's made to his design. It shows us what he's like. And it shows us what he likes. He made it. It's a bit like when you visit someone's home, someone's, a person's home will tell us a great deal, I was going to say an awful lot, it may be awful, a person's home will tell us a great deal, let's put it that way, about the person. Is their home tidy? 
Or is it a tip? It says something about the person. I can think of a, a, a guy who's, uh, a couple whose home we visited, and it's no one here, so don't start thinking, who is it? And uh, I'd only ever seen this guy, in, this couple, in, in church gatherings. Didn't, I saw how they functioned in a church meeting, but I didn't know an awful lot about them. And then I visited their home. They clearly didn't have a lot of money, but their home had so much evidence of just design, the way they'd arrange things, just the colors, and everything was very simple, nothing expensive. They thought, hey, I see something about this couple now. They've got an eye for detail. They just enjoy putting things together, and you you learn something about people when you see their surroundings, how they do things, how they arrange their home. Well, then when we go around in God's world, we see something about God. We see how he does things. We see he's got an eye for detail. Wonderful creativity. We see so much about God. That's how God actually gets through to Job, taking him out to see what God has done. It speaks about God. So God has revealed himself. The world tells us something. It's made by God, and it shows us what God is like. How do we respond? Well, what Paul says here is, they suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. The general response to this magnificent revelation of God is sadly affected by our warped minds. Sin has come into humanity, so we're hostile to God. We're blind to the obvious. And so, suppressing the truth by their wickedness. Instead of seeing all of this and drawing the conclusion that Job drew, people go another route. They dare not see the wonderful design in creation because if you see design, you have to admit a designer. That's obvious. This year, apparently, is the 50th birthday of the Mini. 50 years ago, this revolutionary new car design hit the streets. All automotive design concepts blown to the wind with this wonderful new design, the Mini. 50 years old this year. In all the stuff about the Mini, you will always hear reference to Alec Isagonis, who designed it. A, a, a brave, radical design. Well, who's the designer? Well, Alec Isagonis designed it. And so when you talk about the, the, the car, you talk about the guy who designed it. The two go together. We look at this magnificent creation, but we dare not. We dare not admit design, lest we have to worship the designer. And so people suppress the truth. Suppress it. It happened. That's what we have to believe. It happened. Otherwise, 
you have to see the one who made it. Creation presupposes a creator. What is made presupposes a maker. What is designed presupposes a designer. That is common sense. So we reject common sense. And our thinking becomes futile, foolish hearts darken, claiming to be wise, writing highly intellectual books on the subject, claiming to be wise, but fools. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. And so there's this denial of the obvious, and and not just that, but in verse 21 it says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. In what sense did they know God? Well, the word translated know, it has more the sense of experiencing. Although they experienced God, we're living in God's world, experiencing the fact that he does send the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, that he sends harvest and so on. We experience the work of his hands. But although they experience God, they don't glorify him. Or give thanks to him. A denial of experience and then redirecting the credit for everything around us. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. Or verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator redirecting the credit for it all and say matter was created by matter. We're self-created, but we won't acknowledge a creator. Or idolatry, animism, the worship of nature, mother nature. We hear a lot about mother nature nowadays. It saves us having to refer to Father God. Mysticism. Atheistic evolutionism, some forms of environmentalism, all of these things, worshipping the created thing rather than the creator. When we look at a magnificent scene, we don't worship the scene. We don't have mystical experiences because of those mountains. We look beyond it to the one who made it and we say, thank you, God. We glorify him and give thanks to him. But the general response is to go some other route, to worship nature, to worship created things, rather than acknowledge God. So what is the right response? Well, it's obvious, I guess, the opposite to that. If we have eyes to see, if our hearts are changed so we're no longer hostile to God and so our hearts aren't darkened, well, then we will glorify him as God and we will give thanks to him. That's what it speaks about in verse 21. Although they knew God, they didn't do that. Well, we do know God. We have experienced him and we will glorify him. That's to say we'll ascribe honor to him. And we'll express our gratitude for what he has made. We will look at the works of his hands. And we will honor God for it. We will read creation accurately. We've seen some of the lessons that the scripture draws from creation. We'll read it like that. And we'll honor God. We'll enjoy looking at the works of his hands. Because we love God. And we'll give honor to him. And we will express our gratitude that he's put us in such a wonderful world. He's created so much for our pleasure. 
It, there's just the varieties of things. And God did it for our blessing and for our welfare. Let's be thankful. Saying grace before a meal can be a formality, and it often is. But let's be thankful for what God has done. Thankful for just the, the different tastes that there are, the great variety. Every, you, know, you don't just have an apple, there are varieties of apples. You don't just have a potato, there are varieties and so on. You think, why didn't God just have a standard product? Because he's wonderfully creative and does it for our blessing. Let's honor him. And not just in what we eat, but in what we see around us. Get out into the country, see the vastness and the variety of God's works, and honor him and give thanks to him. So we read it because what we see speaks to us of our God. Many years ago, I and a group of friends decided we wanted to see the sunrise from the top of Snowdon. So we climbed up in the dark, which was a stupid thing to do, but we did it. We were young and foolish. And we got up there. It was dark. And we're right on the top, waiting for the dawn. I, I have to admit, was tired after the climb and fell asleep and missed the dawn. But there you go. (laughs) Someone woke me up. And uh, the sun is now up. And we we went then a few exit yards right onto the top. So we're right on the top. And in the new day, just that wonderful gentle light of a new day. And the mountain peaks all around slightly below us, clouds just going through the valleys. It was breathtaking. And there we are, right on the top. And I don't think anyone suggested it. It just happened that we started singing, How Great Thou Art. Just seemed the obvious thing to do. Lord my God, when I am an awesome one, I consider all the words our hands have made. And when I look down from lofty mountains, we were there, Oh, God, and you gave your son for us. You see the vastness of his works. How can you not praise him? He's the creator of it all. We live in his world. Sadly, all around us, there are people blind to the revelation that God has given of his character. But we see it. And so we will honor him. And we will thank him for his majesty the power that is demonstrated in creation, his sheer inventiveness, his imagination, his care, all of those things are there for us to see, and we see it. And so we'll read it and worship God for what he has done. We cannot but praise him for his works. God has made himself known. He's not silent He wants people to know. And yes, the Bible has to be translated into other languages, and praise God, it is translated into other languages, and the work goes on. But there's a revelation of God that doesn't need translation. God has put it there for everyone to see that they might fall down and seek Him and worship Him. Sadly, they don't. And they need to hear, and we need to go, and we need to tell them but we can point them to the revelation they've already got, as Paul does in the book of Acts. He points to what they already know. The God who made this is the God we're introducing you to. God 
is not silent. He wants people to know. He's made himself known. And humanity stands or falls by how we respond to that revelation. So people are without excuse. What are those who have never heard? People say, everyone's heard. It's a revelation for everyone. But do people fall down and honor God? No, they don't. They turn to other things. We stand or fall by how we respond. Our privilege, our privilege is to glorify God and enjoy him, to see what is made and bring honor to him. I say, oh God, we're going to enjoy the works of your hands. We are so thankful for this world you've given us. It's a bank holiday weekend. You don't need me to tell you that. Get out into the country tomorrow. <laughs> that's how I close my message. That's my appeal. That's, that's the response. Get out into the country. Look around and worship the God you know who made all that.